This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. We have, up to this point, covered a lot of ground. We looked at early church worship, the apostolic fathers, persecution, perversions, the Greek apologists, And then we looked at the very early theologians as they were beginning to develop certain theology, Tertullian, Irenaeus, and others. And now I want to go to what I call theological turning points. These are the crucial, uh, this is a crucial period in which our theology is, uh, derives its, its origins ultimately. I want to look at tonight uh, the formation of the New Testament canon uh, a little bit, and then perhaps at least get into the controversy about the Trinity and how that came to pass. Uh, So these are very, very crucial uh, developments in the history of the church. Let's look first at the New Testament canon. Now, this obviously is of fundamental importance. Uh, We live in a day where authority is something that people rebel against. Uh, But to to acknowledge absolute authority, well, that goes to the core of who we are, to acknowledge an absolute authority. And as as, uh, Francis Schaeffer says, there is a God and He is not silent. The God who is there, and He is not silent. Our God has deemed it good and wise to communicate with us. And that brings us to the canon. One of the most important questions, of course, is the formation of the New Testament canon. Uh, Now, this is a question that I'm a little reticent to get too deeply involved with, partly because I think most of you If you haven't already had your New Testament introduction class, you will have that. So I'm going to touch some of the broad issues and some of the broad persons involved and touch on the relevant matters. Intro. The term canon is not one of those things that you light a little thing and it goes boom. The canon refers to a rule or a measuring rod. That's its original Greek meaning. And from about the 4th century, the term canon came to be regularly used to refer to the Christian collection of sacred writings, the canon. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of you, particularly those of you who took my systematics class, that the first that the canon for the first Christians was the Old Testament. That was their canon, the Old Testament. 
So I want to take, say a word about the development of the Old Testament canon. Now, this is not obviously our primary concern here, but just to pass quickly. Uh, in all its essentials, the Old Testament canon was, for all practical purposes, complete by about 300 B.C. There's a considerable amount of debate as to when the Old Testament canon, that collection of writings that, that we call the Old Testament, was completed. Although discussions about certain elements, particularly that section called the writings, still continue to linger on even into the Christian era. Indeed, up until about 90 A.D. And there at the Council of Jamnia, J-A-M-N-I-A, which met at the last uh, bit of the first century, uh, the full, the complete Old Testament canon was ratified by the Jewish leaders. Uh, the same one that we have today, that the Jews that Jews have acknowledged today. It seems clear that this official recognition in 90 A.D. was the final link in a chain that had been essentially complete for almost four centuries, practically speaking. Now, the first century Christians relied upon the Old Testament canon. Christ himself had acknowledged the authority of the Old Testament. And instinctively, the New Testament church claimed to be the new Israel. And as such, the legitimate heir to both the revelation and the promises made to Israel. So when you read some of the early writers like Justin Martyr or Clement of Rome, when they talk about Scripture... Uh, by and large, they have in mind the Old Testament. Now, the first writer to refer to a New Testament was Irenaeus, 2nd century. But that's not to say that he was the first who acknowledged scriptural authority. Uh, Justin Martyr had referred to uh, scripture as well, as had a number of others. Yes. Use the phrase New Testament as we that's as we use the term. Irenaeus was the first. That's a good question to show up on a final, by the way. It's one of those things you circle in red as you go along. So the recognition of a fixed list or canon of New Testament writings can be dated about the mid second century. We'll, I'll explain that as we go along. Two, historical context of the New Testament canon. In the first century, the apostles' witness was conveyed not only by word of mouth, but also in writing. Now, the necessity for a written account of the story of Jesus, of the teachings of Jesus initially was not felt to be so urgent immediately after his ascension. As long as there were eyewitnesses, authoritative eyewitnesses, uh, people felt as though they could rely upon them to give them an account of what Jesus did and what he said. But as the apostles began to pass from the scene, the need for an authoritative account of the life and teachings of Jesus 
became acute. It seems that the church in Rome asked a very close associate of Peter, Mark, to write up the things that he had learned and indeed perhaps even seen in his travels with Peter. Things about Jesus, his life, and his teachings. So from around 60 to 70 A.D., Mark, at the request of the Roman church, wrote down the things he had been taught by Peter to record uh, those things that he had heard Peter say in his sermons. And it seems that even before Mark put together his account of the life and teachings of Jesus, that there were even already some sort of unofficial collections of the sayings of Jesus that had circulated in some circles. Other churches, it seems, recorded what they saw. About sometime after the appearance of Mark's record, we find that Luke, who had traveled with Paul, also tracing the course of Christ's life and ministries, as well as a, an account of the ministry of the apostles. And we know these now as the Gospel of Luke and as the Acts of the Apostles. We'll talk more about those as we go on. And it seems that the Jewish Christian communities also had a narrative account of the life teachings of Jesus. And that is what we know as the Gospel of Matthew. And then toward the end of the first century, there appeared, and F.F. F. Bruce identifies the city of Ephesus as one of the first places where we get the Gospel account of John. So it's born from a very real practical need, the Gospels are. The eyewitnesses, the authoritative, let me underscore that word, the authoritative eyewitnesses of the life and teachings of Jesus are now gone. And the people, the churches, want an authoritative account. And so they turn to either the apostles themselves and ask them to record things, or close associates. In these cases, Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, to record those things so they could have them for good. There were other writings of the, of the, of, from the apostles. Besides the life and ministry of Jesus, there were also some letters written, particularly by the Apostle Paul, dealing with practical problems in some of the churches that he had established, which also impart certain doctrinal teachings. One might see in these letters these, a practical, uh, authoritative interpretation of the teachings of Christ by these letters of Paul and other apostles. By the 60s, that is, of the first century, there are several letters of Paul and other apostles which were in possession of various churches throughout Asia Minor. But so long as these documents remain scattered in different places, one cannot properly speak of a New Testament canon. Now, having said that, that, acknowledging that various churches possessed letters from Paul, 
by saying that that still does not equal a New Testament canon, certainly in the fullest sense. I am nevertheless wanting to acknowledge very quickly that these documents were recognized as authoritative. There was never any doubt about the authority or the accuracy of those letters of Paul, for example. In fact, they were, for the most part, written versions of sermons uh, or teachings that Paul had given uh, on other occasions. And, of course, Paul himself expected that the churches would receive his writings as authoritative. What do they say in 1 Corinthians 14.37? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or under the control of the Spirit, let him recognize what I am writing to you is the Lord's commandment. So Paul is not somehow timid at, uh, about his authority. He expects that what he writes to be taken as authoritative. Yet, this recognition of his authority, of the authority of separate documents, is not quite the same thing as a canon. That is, a collection of sacred writings. So let's now turn to the question, how the individual apostolic writings were brought together to form the companion volume to the Old Testament. How the apostolic writings were brought together. Look now at number three. Formation of the New Testament canon. At the end of the first century, a collection of Christian writings began to take shape and to circulate among various churches. It seems that a collection of four Gospels began to circulate in the early 2nd century. Now, that's not to say that individual Gospel accounts didn't circulate among some churches, but the idea of four circulating goes to the early 2nd century. By the time of, well, by the, by the end of the 2nd century, the fourfold character of the Gospel accounts had become axiomatic for the New Testament church, for the uh, early Christian church, the fourfold character. Now, there had been other gospel accounts that even had some currency in churches. But generally speaking, the same four gospels that we know and accept were, by and large, the four that the early church of the second century also accepted to the exclusion of other gospel accounts. And you may or may not have heard of the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Uh, we'll mention that a little later. Well, I'll get into that as we move along. Uh, but let me just say this at this point. Um, the early church sort of gradually and very organically began to, to acknowledge these, these four to the exclusion of all others. And the apostolic character uh, is, is, is the crucial element by and large that determined why some gospel accounts were accepted as opposed to others. 
The other thing that's so very, very important is the content. Anyone could say they were an apostle or pretend to be an apostle, but if the content didn't match up with the known apostles' teaching, then people would, would push that aside and say that's, that's not acceptable. We'll move along and, and you'll, you'll pick up how this developed. So this idea of four Gospels to the exclusion of all others becomes pretty much axiomatic by the end of the second century. F.F. Bruce thinks that also in Ephesus that once the Gospel of John appeared, that somehow stimulated a, a move to put all four together, the four Gospel accounts and then to circulate them, not individually, but as a collection. In fact, we can sort begin to start talking about a gospel canon toward the end of the second century. Further evidence of this collection of four, we can see around 170 A.D. when Tatian, Tatian T-A-T-I-A-N, wrote what is called the Harmony of the Gospels, also known as the Diatessaron. And this is a harmony of the four Gospels that we know. Now this suggests, again, this fourfold character. And what this harmony was, it's the, was the, it's the first of many attempts which have gone on to weave the contents of one gospel account with, with each other into one continuous narrative. Dale. That is, I think, in his book called uh, The Spreading Flame. Uh, I don't uh, have a page number offhand. <laughs> At any rate... The fact that he would attempt to harmonize these four accounts and no other accounts suggests that as late as 170 A.D., the idea of these four uh, are authoritative. Some scholars even argue that as early as 110 A.D., when Ignatius of Antioch refers to the gospel in his letters to Philadelphia and letters to other places, that he has in mind the four. That, again, is a bit speculative. So, early on, we're seeing evidence of a gospel canon. Also, let's look at Paul now. Pauline writings. Also, at the end of the first century, there are indications of a move to collect the literary remains of the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated this desire to collect the writings of Paul. Uh, one very interesting suggestion is that when Luke did his writing of the Gospel of Luke, the narrative account of the life and teachings of Jesus, he also did the book of Acts a history of, of the apostles' ministry. And it is speculated that perhaps the account of Paul in Luke's account in Acts 
stimulated uh, an interest and a desire to collect all of the writings of Paul into one group. Another speculation is that uh, Luke in Acts had collected uh, information uh, which in what is now the book of Acts, in order to present evidence at Paul's trial. Again, stimulating interest in Paul. We don't know any specifics beyond those general speculations. What we do know is that churches began collecting various letters written by Paul. In addition, they are writing other churches and saying, please make a copy of any letters that Paul has written you and send them to us. We're trying to put together a collection. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know that Clement of Rome, in his letter to the Corinthians in 95 AD, and in that letter, it's very clear that although Clement lives in Rome, is also in possession of a letter, of a copy of a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So here Clement is in Rome, and he has the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, but he also has Paul's letter, a copy of Paul's letter, written to the Corinthians. So presumably, somebody had made a copy and passed it around. Listen to what Clement of Rome writes, writing now to the Corinthians in 95 A.D. Take up the letter of the blessed Apostle Paul. What was the first thing he wrote to you in the earliest days of your Christian life? To be sure, he gave you injunctions by inspiration with regard to himself and Peter and Apollos, because even at that time you had formed party attachments. What's he referring to? 1 Corinthians 3. Very, very clearly. So Clement of Rome, living in Rome, had access to a copy of 1 Corinthians. So we can see that by the end of the first century, a number of Christian churches appear to be acquainted with letters of Paul not, not written to them but letters in addition to those written to them, they have copies of. Now, in its earliest form, the Pauline corpus, the collection of Paul, Paul's letters, contained ten letters. A little later, three more were added, the so-called pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. So initially, the Pauline canon, if you will, the Pauline collection first had the ten letters. And then later on, three more were added. So there's a total of, if you can't figure that, thirteen letters. So it was, in the early second century, we have, in effect, two collections, two canons, two collections of writings. A gospel's canon and a Pauline canon. Early 2nd century. Collections are beginning to accumulate at this point. Again, I mentioned, I mentioned Clement of Rome, 95 AD, late 1st 
And so categories began to emerge in the second century. They talked about the gospel. What did they mean by the gospel? Well, they meant the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to John and so forth. So the gospel, that phrase, did not simply refer to one of the four, but all four. And then they talked also about the apostle. And what do they mean there? That is, the letters of the apostle Paul to the Romans, to the Corinthians, and so forth. So you have these two collections. One collection was called the gospel. Four gospel accounts. And then you have the apostle, which referred to the ten and then the thirteen letters of Paul, beginning now in the second century coming together in, in collections. Now, one thing that is, needs to be mentioned here as well, remember that I said Luke wrote two writings that we have, the, the Gospel account, but also the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts was neither a part of the Gospel, nor was the, the Acts part of the Apostles. But Acts function very importantly in relating one collection to the other. The collection of the Gospel to the collection of the Apostle. Acts provided historical, the historical background against which the Pauline writings could be more readily understood. It provided the historical context for the more doctrinal and practical considerations in Paul's letters. And it also established very strongly the apostolic authority of Paul. So Acts sort of functions in a way to bring these two collections together. It's the sort of the bridge that unites these two collections both authoritative, but bringing them now together into forming a New Testament canon. They helped the, act, the book of Acts brought the two collections together and thus performed an important service in bringing together a united New Testament. Now the church was already making progress on its own in formulating a New Testament canon in providing a New Testament canon as a companion to the Old Testament canon. When, just before the middle of the second century, something happened to speed things up. Things were moving along at a nice little gradual process, and sudden, suddenly, bam, something really intensifies this process to bring the New Testament canon into being. And that something is called Marcion. Marcion the heretic. M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Now you will recall when we talked about Marcion before that he had produced his own New Testament canon. You will recall as well that he repudiated the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament he didn't like. And he only liked the God of the New Testament as long as He was the God of love. 
He had argued, you will remember as well, that the apostles had been deceived by the Demiurge, the creator God of the Old Testament, and therefore their teachings were false and corrupted. Only the writings of Paul, said Marcion, were true, although he had to sort of excise all the the Jewish elements out. So Marcion actually produced his own collection, his own list of authoritative writings to replace the Old Testament canon. He only accepted them with modifications. He accepted Luke and ten epistles of Paul. But in both cases, he went through with scissors and cut out those parts that he didn't like. Reminds me of Thomas Jefferson. Ever heard of the Jeffersonian Bible? It's about that big. (laughs) All the parts he didn't like, he cut out. So that's what Marcion did. Now, interestingly enough, Marcion also has the same kind of distinction that the church had pretty much adopted at this time. Remember, I talked about the gospel and the apostle. He basically has both of those two categories in his canon. The gospel, for him, was that purified version of Luke and the apostle, or ten purified letters of Paul, purified by Marcion. Now, Marcion's canon, his list, his collection of writings, was a profound challenge and an incentive for the church to produce its own authoritative canon. Now, let me just insert a note here. I think that we probably all too often overstate the importance of Marcion in the formation of the New Testament canon. He was an important figure and he did stimulate new thinking. But he only speeded up a process that was already underway. I don't want you to walk away from from my comments about Marcion thinking that the church would have sort of just flapped on, uh, struggled on without any sort of New Testament canon had it not been for Marcion. Adolf von Harnack sort of is the famous person who put a great deal of emphasis on Marcion as if the New Testament canon would have never been formed had it not been for this heretic Marcion. I think that's an overstatement. I don't want to, uh, to diminish the importance of Marcion. He was important. But he only speeded up a process, sped up a process that was already underway. Now, since Marcion's canon was not the true canon that the Orthodox churches were prepared to accept, it was then up to them to designate what the true New Testament canon was. And they already had a very, very good idea. As a result, we find the earliest explicit statements from the Christian churches which define and begin to define the New Testament canon. What did the Orthodox Church say to Marcion and his New Testament canon? First, 
They said, we do not reject the Old Testament. We believe the Old Testament is part of our canon. It prophesied, made uh, promises about the Messiah, Christ, and they came to pass. The Old Testament is a fundamentally important part of our full canon of Scripture. Secondly, the New Testament does not cancel out the Old Testament, but stands alongside it. This is a corollary of the first point. We accept the Old Testament first, and secondly, the New Testament does not cancel the Old Testament either in part or whole. The third point that the church gave in response to Marcion's got canon. The gospel is not one narrative account, but four narrative accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. The gospel is not one, but four. When I say the gospel there, I'm talking about that, that category that refers to the four that the church had had developed in the course of the second century. The fourth point is that the apostle, that category of other writings, contains not only ten of Paul's writings, but thirteen. Not only ten, but thirteen of Paul's writings, and furthermore, not only Paul's writings, but some of the letters of other apostles as well. And to repeat myself, the fifth point here is that Luke's book of Acts provides a link, an important link between the gospel in its fourfold character and the apostle. Dale? Marcion. At this point, no. This is, a, this is a process. I am summarizing uh, about a century and a half response to Marcion. It's a good, that's, that's a good point of clarification. Uh, this is both at this point. Yes. Other apostles like First and Second Peter, and so forth. Those are also acknowledged. Now I'm talking again over the course now of about 100, 150 years. So I'm I'm summarizing a lot of developments in those. The thirteen was specifically Pauline. The thirteen, yeah. I'm, when I say the apostle, right. we're talking primarily right there about Paul, not not any other apostle, but Paul. And uh, although there is an acknowledgement that there are other letters of other apostles out there that are also valid in the canon. I'm going to discuss the difficulty that Hebrews had in a few minutes. Any others? Just to finish up Marcion now. What it appears to be is that 
Marcion was revising a list of books already in existence, already being used by the church. He didn't just sit down one day and say, I'm going to make up a list. No, there was already, for all practical purposes, an already existing list of books that most Christian churches accepted as authoritative. And what he does is he modifies an already existing list. Very important point. He is not proposing a list for the first time. He is revising a list of writings currently in use in most Christian churches. That's what you find in Marcion. Any questions about Marcion? This is, again, let me just say that I'm not quite sure what you got in your New Testament classes on the canon question. And, and some folks tend to put more emphasis on Marcion. I mean, he is really a crucial figure to be sure. But some people uh, put a lot of emphasis on his role in stimulating the formation of a New Testament canon. And what I want to do is I want to acknowledge his importance without overstating his importance. And we find confirmation of the basic notion that Marcion, his list, presupposes an already existing list in use in the church. We find confirmation of that notion in the so-called Muratorian Canon. Muratorian Canon. M-U-R-A-T-O-R-I-A-N. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.